This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Good day and welcome back to JCMS Author Interviews. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Today we're going to speak with Dr. Stephen Feldman. Dr. Feldman is the author of the article, Assessing the Effect of Clinical Trial Evidence and Anecdotes on Caregivers' Willingness to Use Corticosteroids, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This article appeared in our January-February 2020 issue and is available to you for free for three weeks at jcms.ca. I'm very happy to have Dr. Stephen Feldman join us as our guest today. Dr. Feldman is Professor of Dermatology, Pathology, and Public Health Sciences at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also a dermatologist and skin pathologist at Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Feldman is also a recognized expert in the field of adherence to treatments and an expert in the management of patients with psoriasis. Steve, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today to discuss your article. Um, we know that adherence is one of your one of your areas of special interest and expertise. We also know that adherence is one of the biggest problems, really, not just in dermatology but probably in medicine today. Yeah, and, the biggest. Well, the, biggest, the, biggest. The, biggest. the biggest. Absolutely, All right, the biggest problem. <laughs> and and now we run into this business with atopic dermatitis and 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 trying to learn more about the condition and find out. And now, of course, we're going to find out why our patients didn't get better, um, and that as you've shown us many times over, is probably because they're not using their medicine, not just correctly, but perhaps not even at all. So what prompted you to, um, you and your co-authors, to, to, to look at this um, um, caregiver willingness uh, yeah. to, to, to actually treat themselves or their, their family? Yeah. You know, you've already raised so many interesting concepts. First, this idea that when they're not getting better, it's because they're not using the medicine. And the proof of that is, if you take the worst atopic dermatitis, total body, resistant to every outpatient treatment known to man, lichenified from head to toe, and you admit the patient to the hospital, say on Friday afternoon, and you put triamcinolone ointment on them in the hospital, how long does it take them to clear up? A day. A day, yeah, by the weekend that it's done, they go back to work or school on Monday, you know? So it's this, the hospital doesn't have any magical triamcinolone. And the things they taught me when I was a resident, which I believed for a long time, oh, when you put them in the hospital, they get better because you're taking them away from the stress of the home environment. That's just ridiculous. It's, it's that you're putting the triamcinolone on them in the hospital and they, they clear right up. And then the things that we used to do before we would, you know, realized the problem of atopic dermatitis being poor adherent was just epitomized by um, that. Well, I went to this American Academy of Dermatology meeting, I think it was in San Diego, and there was a lecture by one of the top pediatric dermatologists, atopic dermatitis experts. And, and one of the questions he was asked at the end of the talk is, well, what do you do for the patient with resistant disease? And he said, well, I'm not afraid to give them super strong steroids. You know, and if that doesn't work, I'll add penetration enhancers like salicylic acid. And then maybe have the patient use wet wraps or a sauna suit at home. Uh, and if that doesn't work, methotrexate or cyclosporin. 
And I'm thinking, the guy didn't know the first thing about it getting atopic dermatitis well because if they're not getting well it's because they're not putting the triamcinolone on and if they're not putting the triamcinolone on because mom's afraid you know of steroids what's the chance when you tell her let's switch to the most potent steroid known to man that she's going to put that on the kid or if she can't hold the kid down long enough to do one steroid how's she going to hold the kid down long enough to do the steroid plus a penetration enhancer plus wet wraps or something ridiculous like that i mean We've got to simplify things. We've got to come up with other approaches. You know, I basically devote my life now, at least in large part, to coming up with basic psychological manipulations to get people to use their medicines. And we explored one of those in this paper. And, and that's the idea that people respond to one story more they, than they do to a pile of evidence. I can give you several examples of this, but maybe the best example of it uh, might be school shootings. I think you guys just had a shooting in Canada, of all places. Mm-hmm. It was in school, thankfully. Down here, there's, I don't know, 40,000 gun deaths a year. 40,000. We get that 40,000 every year. We don't shut down the economy because of it. We don't do anything because of it. We sell more guns because of it. Why? Nobody cares 40,000 deaths. But if we have one school shooting where some identifiable children are killed, then people pay attention because people, humans, were not designed to respond to statistics. I mean, Cro-Magnon Man right was counting the mammoths going by going one two uh, three uh, a lot you know i didn't know anything about numbers like 10 or 100 or a thousand it's just we knew we just humans did not evolve to manage numbers we evolved to understand stories you tell somebody one story about an identifiable child that moves people i you know uh the charities recognize this, right? You know, they don't say, save, you know, a million people starving in Africa. They show you a picture of one kid and say, you can save this child. Mm-hmm. Make a donation. And so uh, we wanted to explore that uh, in this trial. So what sort of methods? I mean, you had big numbers uh, of, of people, really, um, for, for, for a study like this. And... and um, what did you find out? I mean, the stories are powerful. I gather that from the information. And it didn't seem to matter the name of whether you used the drug name or, or not, or steroid or medicines. Or Can you help me flesh out the, the sort of nuances of the data here? Yeah. First, I'm going to flesh out the nuances of the methodology. Most of your listeners, when they hear that, are like tuning out. Don't tune out now, because this is really cool. We did this study using MTurk, M-T-U-R-K. This is a service run by Amazon that allows you to survey people. And you can survey people for a penny per person or a nickel. You give people practically nothing. And there's people, probably lots of them at home right now because of COVID, waiting to fill out your surveys. And so you can do survey research at low cost almost instantaneously. 
If you can come up with an idea that can be tested with a survey, you can get that survey done. It is freaking awesome. I have all my minions now doing these surveys. In this study, we collected nearly 500 surveys. It probably took us four hours to collect the data. You know, and if you do 500 surveys, if you're generous and pay a nickel, which is generous on this service, that costs you what is it? What is that? It's like $25 to, to do the whole, to collect all the data. That's U.S. dollars. Maybe it's something different Canadian. A little bit. Uh, yeah. So, so the methodology is, this is fabulous. So right now, if you can't go to your clinic, but you want to do research, you can do it faster and easier than ever. If you have residents and you want your residents to have a project to do, you know, they can do it this way really fast, really effectively. It's it's just awesome. Now, there's some limitations. You know, we want to enroll people who are caregivers of people with atopic dermatitis. So we ask, are you a caregiver of somebody with atopic dermatitis? Do we really know if they are or not? No, we don't know. But if you're asking questions where that doesn't matter too much, okay, fine. Now, let's get to the nitty gritty. What did we find in the study? Um, basically, uh, we're asking different groups of people just one question. Uh, you know, how willing would you be to treat your child's atopic dermatitis with, and then we describe the medicine or the, in the various, the treatment in various ways. And we get a score from zero to 10 on how willing they are. Zero, they're not willing. 10, perfectly happy to do it. And we were interested in knowing if we use the word steroid, does that have a big effect on whether they're going to be willing to use it or not. And in this study, it didn't seem to have a big effect. But the, the more important thing we're stressing in this study is whether giving people the data on the drug or giving them a story about one particular patient makes them more willing to take the drug. And what we find is that basically in all the groups, people were pretty willing to take the drug. If the doctor recommends the drug, they're going to be willing to take it. But there, there were some differences. Uh, if you give people all the clinical trial data on the drug, the efficacy, the safety, what to expect, their average willingness to take the drug was 8 out of 10. If you give them one story about, oh, the doctor had a patient kind of like you who took the drug and did really well on it, then the willingness to take the drug was 9 out of 10. So one story about one patient is more effective than all the data. And I believe it's more efficient too. You're saving time. You know, you don't have to give patients all the data on the drug. You just tell the patient, you know, I had a patient whose disease was just whose psoriasis, whose eczema, acne was just like yours. They did really well on whatever drug you want them to take. In fact, if you want to make it even stronger, I believe if you tell them, in fact, I think I saw them in this same room. In fact, they were sitting in the same chair you're sitting in now. They did really well on the drug. That is very convincing. Now, in this study that we're, you know, we published, there was a third group where we asked, where we gave them the data and the story. And that was no better than the story alone. So don't waste your time giving them the data. If, if your goal is to get them to take the medicine, just tell them, oh, I had a patient like you did really well on this drug. Their, their disease was just like yours. You know, you remind me of them. They did really well on it. That is the way to convince a human to do something very effectively, very efficiently. So um, was there any age group difference in, in their accepting data versus story? 
demographic information was collected, and I think we collected it to show that the different groups were similar in their age and educational level, but I don't recall that age had any impact on the outcomes. What's your sense? Because you see, you know, the young mom, the, the or the the older mother, the father in the plus or minus in the room. Um, My sense is that it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I um, try to stay fit, and you know, even though I'm an advanced age and seeing a gerontologist, I was going to this CrossFit class. I was trying to keep up with the young people. And the uh, workout of the day, it was about a year and a half ago, was um, back squats and rowing. And to do as many repetitions as you could in a certain amount of time. So I'm, I know you can hurt your back with back squats, but I was trying to do real well. And I think I lost form and blew out my back, had a slip disc. I do not recommend CrossFit for old people. Okay. It was it was the most horrific pain I've ever experienced. I mean, I've had kidney stones, uh, scratched cornea. This was the worst. And it hit me while I was in clinic. At the end of clinic, you know, I'm like, they let me leave early, go to the urgent care center. I arrive at the urgent care center and I could not get out of my car. You know, I was like, how do patients supposed to get into the urgent care center? Somehow I managed to crawl into the place. I'm standing there. They've taken my insurance information. I'm like, I don't care about the insurance. Just get me into the doctor. I go into the doctor and I tell him, I need <laughs> narcotics, which I believe is not the best way of getting narcotics from a doctor. Yeah. But he did end up giving me narcotics, not steroidals. And, I, you know, that night I get home. I can't sleep. I'm like slithering across the floor of my house like a worm from my bedroom to the kitchen because I left the narcotics in the kitchen in the middle of the night. I can't sleep for days. I'm reading everything on up to date about how to manage slip discs. And, and not only do I read up to date, but I go to the original literature that up to date is based on. And I'm finding out what the studies show. And the studies very clearly show that nothing helps. You do the physical therapy, you do, getting the surgery or taking steroids does not help at all. Now, I am a MD, PhD physician, scientist. I am now, at the time, a world's expert on what is known about how to manage backs. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'm like, the surgeons aren't going to promise me it's completely safe. There's some risk. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take the steroids. I'm just going to take do my physical therapy, and eventually I'll get better. I go into work, and my Mohs surgeon colleague says, Steve, I had a slip disc, and my neurologist gave me prednisone. I felt a lot better in a hurry. Within minutes, I was on the phone to my gerontologist demanding prednisone. Now, the one story, which consists of basically no evidence whatsoever, made me, the MD, PhD, data scientist, there is no, Kirk, you're never going to interview anybody nerdier than I am. Nobody more focused on numbers and data than I am. And still, the one anecdote, had me, after knowing everything there was about all the studies, demanding steroids. I think this is an extraordinarily powerful tool. And the story is the story is the story. I mean, you only had to hear from one person. Now, is that person, the most surgeon, a trusted person? Yes. Okay. So, that, so versus if you had talked to your neighbor about it, you might not have been as convinced. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think in this case, one 
anecdote. And the more trustworthy it is, the closer it is to you, probably all of those things are the way the human mind works. That's, that's what we trust and believe in. So in, in our trainees, the thing we have to impart is empathy and how to be empathetic with people and to be an expert. Don't be afraid to show off the diplomas, wear the white uh, jacket, um, that sort of uh, approach. I mean, because we've been tending to get away from the authoritarian kind of approach of physicians and trying to be more conversational and involving patients. But what I'm hearing it is probably at the end of the day, it's kindness, empathy, a story coming from a person that has some respect. Would that summarize your, your thinking? No, but it's extraordinarily close in a very nuanced way. You know, in a nuanced okay. way, it's a little different, uh, but it's very close. I, um, one of my favorite dermatologists on the planet is Canadian dermatologist Ben Barankin. And I think Ben probably was responsible for inviting me to the Dermanities Society meeting. This is the Society of Dermatology Humanists. Mm -hmm. I got there early. They, they invited me to lecture on adherence, and I got there early to make sure I understood what they were like. And they're reading poetry to each other and stuff. And that is not me. Look, I got into medicine because I do really well on standardized tests. I am not a tree hugger, all right? I am data-driven. Uh, I, I, I remember one of the dermatologists at the meeting going, I went into medicine because I like to listen to patients' stories. I, I'm from, you know, that men is from Mars, women from Venus book. I, I'm from Mars. I want to help people. I want to get in the room. I want to make the diagnosis. I want to give therapy to the patient that gets them well because I care about them. And then I want to get out and move on because that's just who I am. Now, I told at this meeting to the group that being perceived as caring is critically important. And you empathetic humanists do that naturally. But that's not me. I'm not empathetic humanist. Kirk, you said we had to teach these people to be empathetic. And I want to just change that to we need to teach dermatologists to appear empathetic. It's not whether you're empathetic or not that changes people's behavior. It's whether they think you're empathetic or not that changes their behavior. When I mentioned this to the dermatology humanist, they were all, you can't fake empathy. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. yes, I can. Because... If I do the things the naturally empathetic people do, the patients can't tell the difference. I, so when you said you got to, we got to teach them to be empathetic, that, that may be too high in order. I don't know if you could teach me to be empathetic, mm -hmm. but you could teach me to come off as empathetic, to appear to be empathetic. So to teach you the importance of being empathetic. The importance, the importance of appearing, of appearing empathetic. empathetic. Yes, got yes. It. Yeah. it is important to appear up people. I, I, I believe all doctors want, they love their patients. They want their patients. They care about their patients, but they don't always appear caring. And so when I walk into the room, I, I open the door slowly. I used to rush into the room. Now I rush to the door of the room. I run to the door of the room because I have a lot of patients to see and I don't want to keep them waiting. But when I get to the room, I stop and I open the door slowly so the patients don't think I'm in a hurry. It takes an extra one second to open the door slowly than to throw it open. And patients don't think I'm in a rush. I take the alcohol off the wall. 
you know, they reach to shake my hand. I'm like, no, I can't shake your hand. I have to put the alcohol on my hands. This is to protect you from Ebola or COVID or whatever the disease of the day is. Because I want them to remember when they're listening to national public radio a month from now, hearing stories about doctors who don't wash their hands, I want them indelibly in their mind that I put that alcohol on my hands to protect them. And then I shake everybody's hand in the room, not because I'm empathetic, because this is the show that I do to make them realize I'm an empathetic, human, caring person. I put my hand on their shoulder. You know, I tell, I, I, I say, I bet you found the previous treatment for psoriasis, which is my special area of expertise, to be frustrating. Kirk, do you know what percent of patients found the previous treatment to be frustrating? A hundred. A hundred. Exactly <laughs> right. Because... It wouldn't be the previous treatment if it was working for them. I get zero information asking this question. Yeah. But it leaves people with the impression like, oh, Feldman understands what I'm going through. And then I pull out my lighted magnifier. Not one of these super fancy, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars the young people are using. This is an $8 lighted magnifier with an array of LED lights that I bought on eBay. And I turn on the lights, I tell the student, this magnifier has an array of LED lights that provides uniform illumination. I hold it over the rash or the lesion and pretend to look through it. Now, the reason I say to the student it has an array of LED lights, the first time I tell the student, the student thinks I'm telling them that this has an array of LED lights that provides uniform illumination, and that's important. The second time I tell them with the next patient, they think, he has early Alzheimer's. The third or fourth time I tell them, they begin to realize, oh, he's not telling me anything. He's just using all these big words in front of the patient. So it's like, you know, you mentioned having the diplomas on the wall and stuff. It's just part of the show. So this is the art of medicine, right? And we, and and this whole discussion gets us to this art form and, and brings us back to your article because it's data-driven support for the art of medicine. Yes. So I have all of these techniques now that I do, and I'm trying to, again, put some data to them so that when I give a talk and I say, you should do this, I have a graph proving that you could really do this. Uh, For example, uh, I will tell patients, the mom of an eczema patient will invariably ask me, is this a steroid? And I use a technique that that I learned watching American presidential debates. When I'm asked a question I don't want to answer, I just answer a different question. So if mom says to me, is this a steroid? I tell her, I don't lie and say it's not a steroid. I tell her, this is an all natural, organic, if they move to North Carolina from California, gluten-free, topical anti-inflammatory, made here in America. It's designed to complement your child's natural healing mechanisms. It brings the skin's immune system back into balance and harmony because I like to take a holistic approach to the management of skin disease in children. And I use my most dermanities, empathetic sounding voice, you know, instead of my does it, voice. Does anybody ever call you out on that? No, shockingly, shockingly, no. I had a professor from a university say to me, yes, that is exactly what the kind of thing I'm looking for. How do you think 
the steroid phobia story got going? I believe the word steroid should never be used with a patient because it is inherently ambiguous and misleading. If a patient says to you, is this a steroid? You should not say, yes, it is. Because to them, a steroid means East German women Olympic swimmers with hair growing out of their faces. It means Barry Bonds. Did you guys, it was a British runner, maybe. There's so many stories about um, androgens that people will confuse with corticosteroids. So I believe it is entirely honest to, to mislead people and not use the word steroids, because if you do use the word steroid, you're feeding them misinformation. It's actually more accurate for them if you tell them, when they ask, is it a steroid, if you say, it's, it's, it complements your natural healing mechanism, which is true, because all our treatment, well, I don't know what the natural healing mechanisms are, but whatever we give you to, whatever we give you are complementing them. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. This was really great. I really appreciated the time and energy and the enthusiasm uh, you, you, you shared with us. That was fabulous. It's my pleasure. I'd love to be back. This is a great program you have. Dr. Stephen Feldman, Professor of Dermatology, Pathology, and Public Health Sciences at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Feldman shared with us his views on clinical medicine. I think this was the best discussion of the actual science behind the art of medicine, and I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Well, that's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I've Hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and share this with your friends and colleagues on social media. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.